Samuel chapter 2, verses 12 through 16. Eliah's sons were scoundrels. They had no regard for the Lord. Now it was the practice of the priests that whenever any of the people offered a sacrifice, the priest's servant would come with a three-pronged fork in his hand while the meat was being boiled and would plunge the fork into the pan or kettle a cauldron or pot. Whatever the fork brought up, the priest would take for himself. This is how they treated the Israelites who came to Shiloh. But even the fat was burned. The priest's servant would come and say to the person who was sacrificing, give the priest some meat to roast, and won't, he won't accept boiled meat from you, but only raw. If the person said to him, let the fat be burned first and then take whatever you want, the servant would answer, no, hand it over now. If you don't, I'll take it by force. Isaiah 25, verse 6. On this mountain, the Lord Almighty will prepare a feast of rich food for all peoples and banquet of aged wine the best of the meats and the finest of the wines. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you, Miles, for reading God's word to us this morning. It's a good blessing for all of us. Let's pray together. God, we thank you for your word that you've given to us freely and which you continue to speak through. That this word is not dead letters on a page, but it is living and active, and it is food for our lives. And so we pray that you would nourish us even now by your spirit, that you would speak to us here in this place, in our midst, that you give us ears to hear what it is that you're saying, and transform our hearts. In Jesus' name, amen. As we've been continuing on this Lenten journey using the seven glittering vices for self-reflection and taking an honest inventory of our lives and if there's anything in those lives that is preventing us from enjoying the fullness of life that God offers and longs for us to have, I've noticed this pattern that I figure most of you have noticed as well, that these vices aren't the simple things that they seem to be at first glance. There's a hidden insidiousness to them, isn't there? Something just beneath the surface that's so easy to pass over, unaware of how that particular sin is crouching at our door, longing to devour us. The simplicity of the names for all of these vices are almost misleading in a way. And one of the most misleading in these vices is the vice of gluttony. In fact, as I was preparing for today's sermon, I lamented to Phil on countless occasions that he gave me the difficult one, a point which he never actually conceded to me. But many of the resources that I looked at always offered the shortest section of all the vices to this vice of gluttony. And they all presented the same kind of surface-level understanding which, with which I had already come. Gluttony is an elusive vice for us to define in a culture of fast food and food porn. 
where some form of food is never far from hand or mouth for most of us at any given time. And we live our lives so far removed in this city from the sources of our food that it's difficult for us to truly appreciate the good gift that it is. Gluttony doesn't really ever cross our minds at all. Let's pause for a moment and take a step back to say what gluttony is absolutely not. Because gluttony is not simply enjoying food. Food is good. I know that and you all know that. We all have our favorite meals, something that just warms us up inside, causes us overflowing joy, and this is how it's supposed to be. Yes, it's necessary for our lives, but it's pleasurable to eat for a reason. Good food is a blessing from God. Gluttony is also not just about having a healthy appetite. It's not something that's meant to shame you if you ordered the medium fries instead of the small fries at McDonald's. And it's not about how my family always used to tease my brother about the hollow leg he must have to put all that food away in. That's not what this is about either. What I found to be the most helpful reorientation for me in my understanding of gluttony was just a literal translation of the Greek word, which we can say is gut madness, or I think better yet, belly frenzy. I'm going to be using belly frenzy a lot today, I think. You see, as much as food is good and hunger is a natural feeling to have, this desire, too, can become disordered in our lives. It can usurp the place of other, more important desires. Food can become the focus of our attention. Our stomach becomes our God, and our belly is what controls us. Gluttony, belly frenzy, is not just about overeating eating so much that you get into that food coma and you just can't move for hours on end, though that is the classical image I think many of us hold in our minds. In reality, the way our stomach threatens to control us is many and varied. The medieval church, in fact, identified five major facets through which the vice of gluttony is seen. They identified these ways as eating too daintily, too sumptuously, too hastily, too greedily, and too much. The first two concern what we eat, and the final three concern how we eat. And as we explore these themes of how gluttony reveals itself in our lives, I want to encourage you to take this opportunity to honestly consider your life, how you eat, your attitude towards food, be honest with yourself and allow God to speak to you personally to see if there is any sinful way in you so that he can lead you in life everlasting. So this first form of gluttony, eating too daintily, is for me the antithesis of everything I ever imagined about gluttony. Because in my mind, gluttony is that image of a sort of cartoonish-looking man alone at a table with piles of food all around him, a bib tucked into his shirt, food going everywhere as he just plows through everything in front of him. Maybe he's unbuttoned his pants to get that extra centimeter or two of extra room. 
This is the image I've always had when somebody said the word glutton. But immediately that image is challenged by this tradition of the church that eating too daintily is gluttony. Already I'm personally confronted by this sin because as many of you probably know, I self-styled myself as vegetable skittish. I don't like many vegetables at all and my diet is perhaps a little bit too narrow. And here it seems that being picky about my food is gluttony. Obviously, any real dietary restrictions or that one food that you really just can't stand at all is not what we're talking about. But something like not eating vegetables, well, that really limits what I can eat and how much I can enjoy food. It limits the kinds of restaurants I'm willing to go to with my friends, and it limits how much I can enjoy food at a variety of social occasions. Belly frenzy determines for me that this good gift of this specific food is not good enough for me to enjoy. And that the company of these specific people who I have the opportunity to have a meal with is not the actual focus of the meal, but rather it's my own pleasure and maximum satisfaction. This, of course, goes against every narrative of the Bible which shows us time and again that food is good and to be enjoyed. And that sharing of a meal is where relationships are formed and strengthened. That meals are as much about people as they ever are about food. In his novel, The Screwtape Letters, C.S. Lewis sets to illustrate for Christians how it is the devil might be working in our lives and in this world. How his power is exercised in ways that we really might not expect. And in an effort to describe how gluttony is, in a, is a temptation for an elderly woman, he writes, she is always turning from what has been offered to her to say with a demure little sigh and a smile, oh, please, please, all I want is a cup of tea, weak, but not too weak, and at the teeniest, weeniest little bit of really crisp toast. He continues on, you see, because what she wants is smaller and less costly than what has been set before her, she never recognizes as gluttony her determination to get what she wants, however troublesome it may be to others. The real value of the quiet, unobtrusive work, he says, which the devil has been doing in her for years, can be gauged by the way in which her belly now controls her whole life. Belly frenzy is present in my life. It crouches at my door when I sometimes would rather not accept a dinner invitation for fear of not having food which I think I might enjoy. And Lewis suggests that gluttony is present in the lives of people who would never expect it to be because they don't overeat, but really their bellies are still ruling their lives too. The next way that the medieval church said that gluttony manifests itself is eating too sumptuously. These are the food snobs that maybe some of, some of you know, for whom only the best is good enough. Once again, we see the stomach is becoming the deciding influence in people's lives and their habits, seeking to satisfy their own desires for nothing but the very best. These people too sacrifice relationships 
which could be nourished over meals, and they sacrificed even the enjoyment of the simplest foods. It is this form of gluttony which we see in Eli's sons from the scripture reading today. To unpack this story for you, Eli's sons are priests. And when the Israelites would bring food to be offered to God, it was customary that the priests would live off of those offerings. That was fine. That was normal. But the law required that they not eat the fat part of the meats. They couldn't have the best cut, the choicest piece. It had to be burnt first or boiled. This was no longer good enough for Eli's sons. And they began to take the meat before it had even been offered to God. They ignored the cries of the people to behave as priests should, to obey God and not their stomachs, to let that fat be burned first. A few verses after what was read for us today, it says this, Now Eli, who was very old, heard about everything that his sons were doing to all Israel. So he said to them, Why do you do such things? I hear from all the people about these wicked deeds of yours. Know my sons. The reports I hear spreading among God's people are not good. If one person sins against another, God may mediate for the offender. But if anyone sins against the Lord, who will intercede for them? Eli is reminding his sons of their priestly role, that they are supposed to be in charge of interceding between God and these people, and they're harming those relationships. In their craving for the best food right now, they're not able to fulfill the call that God has on their lives. Their stomachs have become their God, and in its grip they've become less than useless. In fact, they're harming the very people they're meant to serve. Rich food is not the problem here. God longed for the Israelites to come into a land overflowing with milk and honey. So it's not the enjoying of food that is the sin. But once again, we see it is when our stomachs control our lives and we place the enjoyment of rich food above the company of God and his people, of being faithful to the work which God gives us, that gluttony makes itself known in our lives. Third in that medieval list of the forms of gluttony is eating too hastily. When our food is fast, and our noodles are instant. When our email inboxes never stop filling up and the meeting schedule just will not relent. The idea that we can eat too hastily, that we can get eating over with too quickly, seems like a very odd thing to suggest. What Aquinas meant with the suggestion was that eating before meals, eating whenever you felt the slightest rumble in your stomach, at every point in the day, the vice of constantly and incessantly snacking. It also reveals itself in eating so quickly at a meal that you have time neither to enjoy the food nor to enjoy the company of the people that you may be eating alongside. Because food is not merely the fuel for our lives. It's not just an ugly reality which is best to push through as quickly as possible. But if we truly believe that food is a good gift from God, that it's meant to be enjoyed, we have to take the time to enjoy it, and whenever possible, to enjoy it alongside other people. 
It is this community of eating which brings us to the fourth facet of belly frenzy, eating too greedily. If meals are enjoyed together, then the food which we share with each other is not just meant for our own pleasure, but we come to learn to be mindful of other people. In 1 Corinthians, Paul admonishes the church because when they eat together, quote, some of you go ahead with your own private suppers. As a result, one person remains hungry and another gets drunk. The church in Corinth took communion, the feast of the community, which was for them a true meal every time they gathered. And it became an individual affair that divided the church. In greed, people ate alone and had their fill, while other people remained hungry. The greed of their stomachs did harm to their brothers and sisters, and it deprived them of the joy of sharing food with others. In our context, maybe we see this as getting a second helping at Soup Sunday when not everybody has had their first. Our longing to have our stomachs be filled and to satiate our own hungry must be tempered with a generosity toward other people and an acknowledgement that filling our stomachs and satisfying ourselves is a lesser focus than the community which a meal provides and ensuring that all who are eating are fed. Finally, we come to eating too much. If our stomachs control our lives and disorder our desires such that our eating begins to harm our health or we're unable to do the kind of work which God has called us to, this is gluttony in its most apparent form. There's no hard and fast rule as to how much is too much. Athletes and growing children will very likely eat more than many other people. It varies for everybody. But if eating or not eating begins to harm you or harm your relationships with other people or your relationship with God, belly frenzy may be waiting to devour you as well. Because ultimately, gluttony is about the place that food has in our lives and it's the impact that it has on the kind of life that God has called us to, a life that is rooted in community with God and his people, participating in the work which God has prepared for us to do. I was actually reminded this week of a habit that my siblings and I all had while we were growing up, and I hope I'm not alone in having done this in this room, but we would stop whatever we were doing from time to time, go to the kitchen, open the refrigerator, and just stand there and stare and just look into the fridge and eventually close it and leave, not having grabbed anything. And this would infuriate my mother. I can still hear her in the back of my head telling us, if you're hungry, eat something. There is food in that fridge. But of course, this habit wasn't about our being hungry. We weren't hungry. It was about a desire, almost a compulsion to have something, to put food into our mouths, even if we didn't necessarily need it or want it. Because gluttony is about how we are trying to satisfy ourselves instead of relying on God for our satisfaction about the disordered desire to consume 
and not necessarily anything about what we're consuming. So what is the remedy for this belly frenzy? In this season of Lent, Christians have traditionally fasted from food, from rich food, from dairy and meats. And for many of us in North America, and I have confessed for me specifically, to do this would eliminate half or most of my diet. But Richard Foster says that fasting reveals the things that control us. And this practice of fasting, and fasting regularly beyond just Lent, has always been the church's answer to gluttony and overcoming anything which seeks to control our lives. If we find ourselves unable to fast, unable to stop whatever it is that we're trying to stop, to take a break from sugary snacks between meals, to go a day without those meals, whatever form our fast takes, if we find that it's too impossible to do, our stomachs may have become our gods without us even realizing it. Because the answer to belly frenzy is not to encourage it or to feed it any longer, but to regain control over it by choosing to fast and to pray. Fasting helps us come to appreciate the truth of Jesus' words that we do not live by bread alone that it is God who sustains us and feeds us and fills us, and that the filling he offers us is so much fuller and more enticing than the richest of food in any quantity you can imagine. That if there had to be a choice between food and God, and there isn't, but if there was, we would choose God. And from time to time, we test our discipline to that end. Are we able to give up this one good thing for the sake of an even better thing? Then, when we finally break our fast, we should also find that not only has our appreciation for God's role in our lives improved, but our ability to enjoy the food that he has given us also improves. The Christian life is patterned after this life of Jesus Christ. And Jesus' life was marked by both fasting and feasting. There was no belly frenzy in Jesus' life, no inordinate desire and craving just to consume food. But he exercised discipline in his body so he could fulfill the call of God. Our challenge, too, is to exercise similar discipline, to know when we need to fast and to seek God more but also to know when we need to feast and enjoy all of the good things which God has offered to us. It was really interesting to me that in Matthew's gospel and in Luke's gospel, Jesus says that people have accused him of being a glutton and a drunkard, friend of tax collectors and sinners. And his accusers are, of course, half right. He is a friend to tax collectors and sinners. And in his friendship to these people, he feasted with them. He enjoyed their parties, but not for the sake of the food and not for the sake of the wine. These were good things, but they were never the main thing. The focus of these meals for Jesus, the purpose of celebration is always the people. 
Going to a party didn't make Jesus a glutton, and I am so thankful that going to a party doesn't make us gluttons either. But we learn from Jesus' example of valuing God's values first, of appreciating the God who created what we now enjoy. And we follow him as he uses this tool of fasting to orient his life constantly back toward his Father and the relationship which would fulfill all of his needs and satisfy all of his desires. The good news of the gospel and the reality of this kingdom of God is those words which were read to us from Isaiah today. On this mountain, the Lord Almighty will prepare a feast of rich foods for all his people, a banquet of aged wine, the best meats, and the finest of wines. Our God is a God who feeds us, and not just with anything, but with the finest things. He satisfies our hunger and longs for all people to live together in community with him, to enjoy this feast together. It is this feast which we look forward to, and we trust in its coming even as it is made more real in our lives every day. Just before the story of Eli and his sons in 1 Samuel is the prophecy that those who were full hire themselves out for food, but those who were hungry are hungry no more. We have no cause to worry about filling ourselves up or meeting our own needs. This is the pattern of our world and it will surely fail. But the promise of God for his people is that the hungry are satisfied. And it begins for us at this table. At this table, we join in the feast of God that he promises to us, which nourishes our very being, which brings us into the life and the community of God himself. Isaiah later says, in response to this banquet of aged wine and the best meats, that all the people will say, this is our God on whom we have waited so that he might save us. This is the Lord for whom we have waited. Let us rejoice and be glad in his salvation. The vice of gluttony, belly frenzy, does not want us to wait. It has no desire to wait. It needs to be satisfied now with the foods that it wants in the ways that it wants. It takes for granted the good gifts that God gives to his people now and forgets the promises of much better things to come. God will feed the hungry. He will satisfy all of our desires, and the feast that he offers is no meager one. It's not a simple one, but it is lavish and abundant. C.S. Lewis, in his sermon, The Weight of Glory, concludes, it would seem that our Lord finds our desires not too strong, but too weak. We are half-hearted creatures, fooling about with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered us. Like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is offered by the promise of a holiday at sea. We are far too easily pleased. Our desires are too weak. We should not be satisfied with the ways that we use and abuse food to be satisfied ourselves. But we should fix our desires on the feast which God promises 
and enjoy all the food that he offers to us in the company of everybody that he invites to his table. So that on the day when we experience the fullness of the feast which God is even now preparing, we can truly say, this is our God on whom we have waited. Let us rejoice and be glad. Amen.